0: Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin. here. welcome back to another episode of The Vault, a special edition of the Speaker Lab podcast. We're going back in the archives and unlocking some timeless episodes and classics and revisiting some of your favorites from the show. Now, if you've ever thought about expanding your business beyond borders, then this episode is for you. Today, we're going to be talking with international speaker Phil Jones, who is also a newly minted member of the NSA, the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. So shout out and congrats to Phil for that. But Phil joined us here to share his expertise on making a break in the international market. He's going to be answering questions about budgetary variations, the experience of simultaneous translation, and what it takes to connect with international audiences. We're also going to look at the importance of understanding why you want to take your message abroad and what you need to keep in mind to create some of the best experiences that you will ever have while traveling. If you're at all curious about speaking internationally, then you won't want to miss my time with Phil. So let's jump right into it. Here's my conversation from the vault on becoming a speaker in the international market with Phil Jones. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Today, joined by my buddy, Phil Jones, who's actually with us back on episode 158, which if you haven't, that's an episode, I don't know if you know this, but this is an episode I have referenced numerous times and direct people to regularly. So make sure people go back, check out episode 158 to hear all of Phil's story. The dentist story, I tell a lot about you doubling down on that. <laughs> and the cupcake example I've shared yeah. before. So yeah, we, The
1: cupcake is legendary. we just we leave that leave there.
0: To that. Right? The people got to go back. Listen to that in 158. So, uh, Phil, first of all, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. You actually, at the time of this recording, uh, you've made a minute for us to hang out because you have a fresh set of babies that uh, you right. and your wife have just uh, brought into the world. So, congratulations on that. You got two little girls, man. How you feeling?
1: I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like I need to ramp up my speaking business.
0: <laughs> you got to get back into the game now.
1: You betcha. You betcha. Look at some of the other ways I can make money. So it's all good.
0: So today, what we want to talk through is the international market. So we have a lot of people who are currently uh, within the US. I'm, you, know, you and I are both in the US. You obviously have a much, much sexier accent than I do. So you're not from here. Uh, but there's a lot of people who are in the U S who want to speak internationally and there's a lot of people internationally who either want to speak in the U S or just speak in their own country. So, uh, you have got a lot of experience. So first of all, just for context sake, can you kind of give us kind of the breadth of your experience speaking internationally and what your, what your business kind of looks like? Sure. Um,
1: Tell me what you really mean by what my business looks like before I kind of give experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, you do a good amount of speaking, but you also have a a book that you sell. So what does, in terms of the speaking part specifically, uh, how many countries are you typically speaking in? How many gigs are you typically doing in a year? Uh, And then also just a snapshot of what you even speak about.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I've had a business where one way or another, I've I've delivered 90 or so plus events um, per year for the last 11 years, spoke in 57 different countries, been paid to speak over 2,500 times. I spend the bulk of my time helping people who hate the idea of selling stuff to be able to sell with more confidence and more credibility and get better results. And that means I work across a breadth of different industries and deliver events, anything from keynoting to audiences of 4,000 people to running small workshop groups of 8, 10, 12, and everything in between. So, so that's my business as such. About 35 to 40% of my revenue comes from what would be seen as, as traditional speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I have won and have done for years um, annual retain client that's taken me around and done a number of, number of things where we'll do 16, 18 gigs a year with those guys. I get a good chunk of revenue through my books and my licensing deals that are associated towards that. Um, and, and more recently have started been picking up some some nice revenue streams from partnerships with people like Audible uh, yep. and, um, and some other things. So fingers in a number of pies and use this whole personal brand things to, to, to leverage income streams in as many ways as possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so bottom line though, uh, for the sake of this conversation is you have a lot of experience internationally and working with international clients and speaking internationally and traveling internationally as well. So uh, let's kind of start with this. For those who are, let's say US speakers who are wanting to start to speak more internationally, let's kind of just take a quick trip around the globe What's the differences between the U.S. market versus, let's say, uh, let's start here in, in uh, North America. Let's talk about uh, Canada and even to the south, Central, South America. What are the differences in between the U.S. and those markets?
1: Um, what are the differences? Um, I, I think differences between, between U.S. and Canada are... Uh, um, and not so much, you'll know that as well as I do. I mean, they're very similar. There's some difference in, in audience. Mm-hmm. One big difference, just culturally speaking, is when speaking in Canada, the fewer examples of American companies you can give, the better. Yeah. Um, proud to be Canadian, proud of other parts of the world is what you, what you find there. Um, key difference, again, I guess, in, in US to Canada is fee expectation. Mm-hmm. There is far more opportunity for premium high-paying gigs here in the US there is an abundance of opportunity in Canada and through South America for events that might sit in the five, seven and a half, ten, twelve and a half range. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether this is just my experience, but the Canadian market seems to have a have a cap at around twenty thousand US. Okay. From me point of view, unless you know you're carrying a gold medal that you flew to the moon and back, or um, you know you have some form of high level celebrity that is attached to your work, there isn't quite as buoyant a marketplace yeah south america what i would say is the audiences are hungry so what there is is there is far more desire through those audiences to come and learn from western speakers that they want to know how it works in america they want to understand how it works in the uk and they are they almost in their own mind attach the letters phd to you without you having it um, or whether you do or don't have it with regards to your, your, your credibility to be able to deliver just on the fact that you have a successful speaking career, um, the other side of the border. Um, but I, yeah, I've enjoyed speaking in, in Colombia. I've enjoyed speaking in Peru. I've enjoyed speaking uh, in Brazil. Um, and those have been fun experiences where largely the audiences is, is very receptive post event as well. Mm-hmm. And they want to kind of understand more from you the, stick themselves in a line forever to be able to wait for an audit an autograph or ask questions.
0: What about uh, as we go East, if we go into Europe, that's where, uh, obviously you're from, from the UK. Uh, what are the European market like? And, and even Europe is, um, you know, a big market. There's a, a lot of, uh, countries that exist there. So what, um, what's the European market like for speaking opportunities? D-
1: differences as well. And I think particularly from an American speaker, who might be looking to be able to travel and do more is, is that you have, you have big differences. So you have multi-national uh, companies mm-hmm. that are running events. So if you've got a company that has strong representation in the U.S., has strong representation in the U.K., has strong representation in, in Germany and in Australia, et cetera. So recently I did some work for a, uh, for a car company that has um, strong representation in each of those areas. Often what they like to do is they'll do what they did in the U.S. and they look to go to replicate it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So the differences are about the same. There aren't any. Other than perhaps what the audience is and how receptive they are to to perhaps your messaging, there might be different energy levels. But when you're dealing with a company, particularly for corporate events or association type events in, say, the UK or through Europe, you'll tend to find again that they have far smaller budgets. Now, the reason they might have a smaller budget is based on the saturation of the market. So if you take the UK market as a whole, the the core for speaking business in the UK, I.e. the circuit, so to speak, right. is in the fifteen hundred pounds to five thousand pound mark. Okay. If you're charging five thousand pounds for a speech, you're getting it regularly, then you're crushing it. At the three, three and a half, four, five mark, you're competing with um, retired Olympians. You're competing with people that last year were playing in uh, playing Premier League soccer at a certain level. Mm-hmm. You're um, you've got retired sports stars galore. Um, you're in that kind of micro celebrity space, even at that type of feats. So the number of gigs that exceed that are so few that the chances to be able to play into that becomes a lot harder, which I think is why lots of European speakers um, look to be able to spread their wings and say, how do I get further as you start to grow in competence through your career is that you want to be able to go out and find where these, these bigger opportunities are. And, and, And I'll add to that the open events that you see, in the UK and through Europe are lower ticketed prices. Don't see many $2000 um, tickets to come to a conference or a seminar. They might be charging 99, you know, 97 or 297 etc for a ticket to be able to attend. Yeah. So that all ripples out towards what they can afford to pay for a speaker. Plus when you remove the barrier of needing to take a flight which is a very real thing through much of Europe now, all of a sudden, there's a far bigger pool of speakers that they can be able to work from locally. There's more people who jump in a car, more people who do it for free, more people who do it for next to nothing. Um, or, you know, just for the Instagram photos, you're fishing in a very different pond in those kind of markets.
0: So in Europe specifically, is it It sounds like there are um, the budgets could potentially be lower. Yeah. But also it sounds like that there may just be fewer opportunities. Um, and it's also potentially more competitive because there's just more people who are looking for those opportunities. And just,
1: just think about the pure logistics of it. If there's a national sales conference, how many salespeople are there in a country that is the size of a postage stamp versus the country that is you know, 50, 60 times the size? Yeah, yeah. Um, so every event tends to be a little bit smaller. The right. production level tends to be a, a little bit lighter you know, they're not, they're not putting curtains up around all four walls. You've got a, a pop-up stage as opposed to a stage that lines the wall. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes a different scale of production. And now I'm not talking about every event. There's clearly exceptions here all the way through. I did a you know, great full fee paying gig in the UK last year. That was fabulous. Um, I'm talking about that kind of heart of the industry is very, very sure.
0: different. So what about, our, all right, as we go further, uh, further East then uh, toward Asia, uh, Japan, China, what's the speaking market like there?
1: Uh, I've done a, a fair amount of work in those markets. And my true answer is I don't really know. <laughs> uh, I've had happy clients. Yeah,
0: It's
1: weird. It's weird delivering to an audience that, that doesn't connect. You know, if you'd uh-huh. like to connect with an audience is sometimes my, my work that I've delivered through Asia, um, and I talk a lot towards word choices and nuances, et cetera, working through real-time translation um, and simultaneous translation, you're like, is this going in? Are they getting this?
0: (laughs) Um, There's mental conversations that speakers have in their head (laughs) in the middle of the talk and we're not really sure how it's going.
1: (laughs) And and, and, you know, I've enjoyed the ability to be able to kind of see the cultural differences and learn from the people that way around. it's not a market I would look to be able to rush back for and say, hey, can I do more there? Yeah. A few exceptions, though, is markets like Hong Kong, markets like Singapore that still have a very westernized edge towards them. Uh-huh. Great places to visit, great places to do business. And what you feel like you're doing is is you're working in the same environment you're used to in the US. It just so sort of happens to be a bit different. And the cultural mix of people in the room is different. Yeah. So, so those become sort of some, some differences. But I've worked through Thailand, and that was... Was remarkably different again. I've worked in the Middle East, in in Iran, and that was very, very different again. Just in terms of how you had to culturally behave around people. And there's a break in the conference for prayer time, and those kind of things. Just you have to do a lot of work behind the work to be able to make sure that what you can do is is show up as a foreigner in somebody else's space and still get it.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back and, and touch on that. Let's finish up and, and talk through um, just geographically. Uh, Australia. What's the Australian market like?
1: I was in Australia six weeks ago um, and I can't talk towards the market as a whole. I've probably done four or five gigs there. Um, And from a Brit speaking in Australia, I think there would be a difference to an American speaking in Australia, Mm -hmm. just in terms of connection towards, towards the audience. Um, The marketplace there is very, very similar to the U S marketplace, but it's smaller. There's just a fewer number of gigs. Again, we have that same, challenge towards the number of bigger geeks, bigger geeks doesn't exist in the same kind of way. And it's, I'd say that the Australian speaking market is very similar to the UK speaking market, only that geographically, there's a lot more room between cities. So if you want to go on an Australian tour, be prepared for some long, long flights.
0: Right, right. There's not a lot in the middle there. You got an East coast and a West coast and uh, nothing in the middle. Right. So, okay. So let's say uh, we can take this a couple different directions. So someone in, um, in one of those countries that we've kind of talked about in one of those geographical places. So whether they are in uh, the, the UK or in Europe or in Australia or wherever they may be, they want to do more within their country is there anything that they need to be thinking through or be aware of to help differentiate themselves from other speakers that are even within their own country? And again, I know this is going to vary somewhat yes. <laughs> from um, market to market, from country to country and, and, and region to region, but just as general, if I'm an Australian speaker trying to do more of business in Australia, is there anything that I should be considering or thinking through?
1: I think it's hard to be a hero in your own backyard, right? We've heard that saying a number of times before. So particularly when when reputation is everything in the speaking industry as you grow and and you know i've done every level of speaking for the last 11 years been at very low fee and i've worked my way up and a number of notches in between is you need to allow yourself these periods of time to go through reinvention and those reinventions almost become your permission to then be able to step into a new fee bracket to step into something we rely upon our reputation and that's both a good thing and a bad thing if you built a reputation in the australian market of being a great trainer who can speak who is at fifteen hundred dollars a session it's hard to shake that reputation mm-hmm. so what would i do if i'm looking to try and think about bigger and better things is i would give myself a purpose to be able to go through a change and i would pick a brand new industry to run out as a niche so, for example, if you've done a load of work, and I was chatting to a speaker friend here in the U.S. about this today, is, is he's built a really solid speaking business as um, serving the financial services industry, serving lawyers and professionals, etc. He's capped out on fee. He's almost too deep within that niche now to be able to then build out of it. And he's built a reputation as a five grand speaker. He wants to be getting 10, 12 and a half, 15, but the struggle he's going to get is because he's built a reputation with a load of people who've booked him at five grand. Yes. He hasn't got a big enough reason to be able to change it. So pivot industry, go look at what's the industry that you're super familiar with and then say the challenges and, and, and the problems that are, that are uh, being experienced by that group of people. Who else is finding those same kind of difficulties? And the best proof of this working in practice is the number of people that have come out of strong leadership roles within, say, the military, and then taken those principles and applied them towards business as a whole, yeah. and then they found that they've been universally transferable, but the respect is carried across, that same thing can happen niche to niche. So if I want to do more business in Australia, and I'm in Australia right now, that's what I'd do. I'd pivot niche, and I'd use the credibility I have from my existing niche to be able to open a door into the new one, and I'd show up there with my... Revised branding, perhaps with a new book, perhaps with a new tool. And I'd reinvent myself with my new fee starting scratch. But I'll play that in that new market.
0: So if, the lesson there
1: the the lesson really Grant, is, as speakers, we should have two businesses at every given point in time. We should have the business that we're running and the business that we're growing. Now, it might be the same name over the door, but if you think of it that way around, like I'm running my core business that is me within the space where I'm familiar and yeah, I get some wins and some slight lows there, et cetera. But I should also have this other area of the business that's the part that I'm growing that I want to be able to grow into. And they should be able to pivot. It'd be nice that the business that you're looking to be able to grow later becomes your core business that then gives you permission to be able to say, oh, I'll take the next new 20% and launch into something new. And niche
0: is a great way to do that. Can we take a quick rabbit trail on that? I'm curious, yeah, yeah. So what does that look like for you today of what is the business that you're running and what is the business that you're growing? Yeah, just sure. just an example. So the business that I'm running right
1: now is continually looking to be able to maintain high performance results through um, the sale of my books, like Exactly What to Say, and my new How to Persuade product with Audible, and my my core keynote speaking business with two, three bureaus that, um, that provide me a steady stream of decent gigs. The business that I'm growing is I'm looking to be able to develop um, myself as a 35 to 50 grand speaker. That is currently my mission, and I know they're different gigs than the ones that I'm getting right now. So I have allocated a period of my time to be growing my brand, growing my presence, building the equitable assets to be able to work towards that. And my direct business, it's going to be funny this coming out on a live podcast, my direct business is currently more expensive than my bureau business. So I'm experimenting with the idea of asking for more money myself before I go out to my bureaus and say, hey, by the way, my fees are up. I want to be able to prove that the fee I'd like to be able to command in the market is something that people are happy to be able to pay. So that that that's my growth position in right now is is I'm getting after that.
0: Interesting. Very cool. Uh all right, thanks for sharing that. So uh so you mentioned the example of all right, someone who is in a market who's trying to do more in that market. Um mm-hmm. they perhaps need to pivot to a different audience or perhaps to a different topic. What would you say to someone who's saying, "Okay, I'm I'm in, uh, let's let's say I'm in the UK and I want to do a lot of I want to do more speaking and I realize I am near the cap of what I can do in this market and I'd love to do more within the U.S. Um, how do I break into the U.S.? There's a lot more opportunities there. It feels like the, uh, the fees are going to be higher, but it's also yep. potentially more competitive there. Uh, how do I convince organizations or groups to bring in a speaker from another country when there's plenty of good options that exist within the U.S.? So how do I get into the U.S.?
1: Okay, first things first is you've got to be open for business internationally. Now, a mistake that I see many people make is that they um, are hard to contact from outside their original country. They don't think about international dialing codes. They don't think about hours of operation. They don't think about even the language that is communicated through on their website and whether it talks towards the people that they're looking for. So consider your web presence, consider your marketing materials, consider everything you have and say, does this talk to the fact that I'm an international speaker? Yeah. So start there. Having done that, if you decide the country that you want to be able to come towards, the first thing I'd look to be able to do is I'd look towards the companies I've worked with in my past, within my domestic territory, and say who here that I've got proven track record with has offices, has connections towards people in the country I want to work with. And I'd look to be able to make that my one gateway gig. And I'd look to maybe even do it for expenses only. When I come in for that gig for expenses only, I might say, well, while I'm here, I'm coming in for three weeks, four weeks. Don't come in for one gig. Come in for one gig and then spider off of that gig and see if what you can do is that you can develop another five, seven, nine, eleven relationships off the back of that that give you the chance to be able to say, well, I just created a foothold and then I've just created some credibility. Get video like crazy, get testimonial like crazy and be prepared to be able to do all the things that you did when you were brand new in this business, starting again from scratch in a new environment with the experience of the fact that you've got more stage time. Um, And what will happen onwards from there is that you'll wake up an international speaker. Which now means you've got more opportunity to be able to go and do more international speaking work. So that could be a client. It could also be an application towards like a social media marketing world or any of these that have an open application for speakers. It could be that you decide that's the gig I want, put a killer application in. But when you put that application in, pivot around locally again, say who else is in this region that I might be able to work with and see if you can stack three, four, five, six, seven other gigs towards it. Even if they're training gigs, coaching, mentoring, etc., extend the trip so you can network locally and start to get yourself known within that environment. The other thing you might look to be able to do is to work the podcast circuit. It is it's the great way for you to be able to travel without traveling. Is if you think about the speakers you might want to emulate, mm-hmm. follow the shows that you've seen them appear on, and see if what you then might be able to do is to get a guest spot on some of those shows that then gets you known by some of those audiences and then get the inbound inquiries in. And the other practical thing I do is I've worked LinkedIn from the predetermined pop prospects and and companies that I'd like to better work with and see if I can introduce myself to them, run a long tail conversation out over a period of time, get permission that when you can say to them, Hey, next time I'm in your area, would you be open to running a session? Would you be interested about meeting up? And just so happen to them be in that area again in the future.
0: Interesting. Uh, if we were to to reverse the roles there, as someone's a US-based speaker, and they want to start expanding more internationally and globally, um, I, I see this for one of two reasons. One is that um, there's some type of, of cachet that comes along with, yeah. I, I want to be an internationally known speaker, and it only takes you speaking in one other country to be qualified for that. Um, but I also find that just from a, a selfish standpoint, that a lot of speakers like the idea of I want to go to these other countries anyway. And so if I can get paid to do it and, and, and be able to speak over there, then it checks that box as well. So is there anything that you just described there that you would do differently if I'm a U.S.-based speaker trying to speak internationally?
1: Yeah. I, I think the first thing I'd do is i get clear on my why. Like, why, why do you want to speak internationally? If it's to be able to check a box to say, yes, I've spoken internationally, then fine. Like I've got a mission in the fact that I'd like to have spoken on every continent. I've done six. I need to do seven. If you know of anybody booking goods in Antarctica, I'd like to be able to do that just (laughs) as a human life goal of saying I spoke on every continent and got paid to do so. Um, But I think lots of people view international speaking as lucrative. From a U.S. point of view, you may have to understand that if you have a speaking business in North America, you have a speaking business in probably the most lucrative market that could possibly exist um, as a professional speaker. That means that every market that you're looking to sell into is less lucrative than the one that you're already operating in as your core business. So if your passion to be able to do so is to travel, find the spots you want to travel to, prospect into those spots geographically speaking, and understand where you're prepared to go. Now, I've got a friend of mine who likes to spend three months of the year in Australia, and he likes it to be fully funded. He has one core client in that area, he then markets out to some others based on the relationship that that one client's had, and he gets himself booked up for like a dozen gigs in Australia for three months, books an Airbnb, um, and you know, camps out in Australia for three months when the weather's bad in the, U- in the UK with him and his missus. They have a lovely time, and that's very, very strategically put. It's not because he wants to speak in Australia. It's because he wants to live in Australia for three months. (laughs) He wants somebody else to be able to pay for it. So, So get strategic around the countries you might want to travel to. Sometimes it might be because you want to test your material. If a speaker has never done simultaneous translation... I think you have to do it at one point in your life because it changes the way that you deliver it. You think so much more about the diction that you use. You think so much more about the segmentation of your content. It's a great itch to scratch to be able to say, I did that and the lessons that you'll be taught from it. Something I'd recommend none of you ever do is, um, to do consecutive translation. I'd love to share a video. In fact, I might even make it unlisted on YouTube and let you have this in the show notes. Um, in, I think it was Romania or Serbia or at a gig about two years ago and it was a two hour keynote that I found out the night before the keynote was, um, now going to be, they couldn't afford simultaneous translation, which is where you just do your thing. Two people in a booth, uh, are listening to it, translating it or interpret it into another language goes in an earpiece to everybody in the audience. They couldn't afford the headsets, and they couldn't afford the, uh, the AV. This is the night before the event. So it's gonna be consecutive translation into two separate languages. So we wanna cut your two hours to one hour, and what we'd like you to be able to do, Phil, is we'd like you to be able to say a line, for them to be able to say a line, for them to be able to say a line, For you to be able to say a line for them to be able to say a line for them to be able to say a line for you to be able to say a line and you should be able to get through your material in about an hour or so and i think the audience will be okay with it that's a car crash waiting to happen right your ability yeah real rough ride. but what you learn there very very quickly and whether it's simultaneous or consecutive translation is that your interpreters are part of your speech You've got to treat them like your team. You've got to get to know them before the event. You've got to take the time to be able to work through your slide deck with them to let them know where transitions are going to happen. You've got to let them know any nuances in word choices that you might reach for and what the interpretation of those might be. You might want to give them the framework of your stories as opposed to the framework of your content so they can reinterpret an analogy ahead of time so that the audience can get it. There's lots of work before the work when you're working in multiple languages that I think many people miss. And that kind of leads towards the, the cultural awareness that you need to have when stepping into to, to other environments. Examples that I've seen where people do this well, is just the simplicity of flipping out a story towards something that relates to that audience. I was with um, Jerry Coleman in Australia recently. Mm-hmm. And in his slide deck, he had a slide that showed money and he flipped it out to be Australian currency as opposed to US dollars. I think most speakers would have been lazy and kept their existing slide in place. The, the, the movement towards examples, I tell a story about a pen in a department store and I would talk about the department store maybe being Macy's if I'm in the US.
0: Yeah.
1: But I talked about it being Woolworths when I was in Australia. Mm -hmm. Because my job is to be able to allow the other people to be able to connect and and rumor on the street Particularly for us speakers is they're too lazy to do that work. That is the reputation that exists across the whole So so doing those things can can be remarkably useful taking 30 seconds to um, To plan an intro that is in their language if there is a language change just enough to be able to say that you tried Yeah it doesn't have to be brilliant. In fact, if it's not brilliant, it's almost better. It just shows that you put some effort into the fact that you can say hello, good morning, you can welcome them, and you can let them know the rest of the speech is going to be in your language. They're like, damn, thanks for trying.
0: Yeah.
1: Mistake is over egging it. Is, you know, I'm so delighted to be able to be here. This place is the best place on the planet. Like, oh my God, this is you know, this is incredible. Like you, you know, like like raining too much praise on their city is quite often makes them want to vomit. Yep. Um, To a point of also remembering that many international events have drawn people from cities and countries surrounding that. True. So you're often missing the bulk of the audience anyway. Um, What else can I just dribble out on this stuff?
0: As it relates to it, if I'm going to some country that I've never, I booked a gig and I'm going there and I want to prepare, um, those are some simple things to do. How is there anything that I can be doing to learn more about the culture or like I this story works really well or this. Um, analogy or this little throwaway line makes sense um, and some type of euphemism or whatever within the U S and I know that they're immediately going to get it and there's some built-in rapport, but I have no idea if that's going to translate or if that's going to work or like you mentioned, some cultural things that are totally fine in the U S are totally taboo in a different country that I am just naive on. Is there anything that you do just if you're going to a new country in terms of just homework to make sure that you yeah, don't cross some I, of those cultural barriers? I think sometimes,
1: we can be too risk averse to a point that we take out some of our best material. So I have, I have a few jokes through some of my material that, that that, like tread quite close to the line of, of um, sexual innuendo or just, you know, we play on that line a little with sexuality. Um, And I've always gone through just checking those with event organizers, et cetera, to make sure that we're not going to miss. And more often than not, like, no, we want that. We love that. Um, You know, that's what it's all about. For cultural awareness, get in a day or two early, go have dinner, go for a walk around the city, go feel what it's like. Um, the, the, the dash in, dash out is where you leave yourself remarkably exposed to, to just not get that feel. My favorite thing also to be able to do for an international speaking gig, and particularly in a, in a cross-cultural um, speaking gig, is, is to not be the opening keynote. I'll do everything I possibly can to be later in that agenda, and I'll be a fly on the wall to everything that happens prior. Are
0: you do the same I, in the US.
1: Yeah, I do the same here as well. But yeah,
0: really, you'd prefer to be the uh, like a closing or later in the conference.
1: I prefer to be later in the conference. Interesting. Um, I, I like to be able to get my read on an audience before I come straight out the blocks. Um, and also my material is contextual. I, I do a lot with interaction with an audience. I have to make decisions and choices ahead of time as to where I might go, what I might do, who I might pick on. Yep. I've seen how an audience reacts to somebody else, but this is almost a non-negotiable to me in a, in an international event. Even if the only thing I'm seeing before is the opening remarks from the CEO yep, yep. or you Know, I'm seeing the, the, the event the night before with everybody. Like, it's yep. a different vibe if they're all sat around drinking beers and eating canapes than, the, than if they're sat around a stuffy boardroom table and, and nobody's saying anything to each other. Like yeah. You're just getting a feel for it. Culturally speaking, what else would I do? Um, chances are that another speaker within your network has spoken that country before. Yeah. Put the word out. Find out what their experience is. Get them to be able to tell you some, some lessons from it. Um, and I think there's quite a humbling thing that any of you should have is if you want to speak more internationally, accept the fact that you might not be as good as in an international market as you are on your core turf. Very true. So maybe it's a good time to accept a fee that is away from where your standard fees are because you might not be as valuable in that environment as you are within your, within your core demographic. And that gives you permission to be able to try, it gives you permission to play, it gives you permission to fail, which is where some of your best experience could come from.
0: Yeah. To piggyback on that, uh, we touched on a little bit earlier, but you, you kind of alluded to the fact that in terms of just fee differences across the globe, mm-hmm. the U S tends to be, is it fair to say that the U S tends to be at the top and then how would things kind of shake out from there, both in terms of, um, fees and then just opportunities that exist? There,
1: there are high paying fees and low paying fees in, in every given market, yeah. even, um, know, I'm picking up one of my biggest fees this year for a gig in Mauritius that I go for next month. I would not have seen Mauritius as an economic epicenter of the planet. um, And it would be very easy for me to prejudge that they didn't have the money to be able to pay my full fees. Um, But they do, it's there. Um, So the rules are that there are no rules. I think, though, what we should look at when we're looking at fees in different environments is to understand what is the market I'm stepping into and pay closer attention to the economics of the event that you're looking to be able to go to work at. If you're, for example, I did a lot of gigs through Eastern Europe, and this was an events management company looking to be able to fill events, and their average ticket price on the event was 69 euros. They were looking to get three to 400 people in the room. They had some sponsorship. They wanted to run it at a relatively high production value. You can start to do the math on this and realize that if I'm looking to be able to ask for a fee that would be in line with my standard US speaking fee, I swallow every piece of revenue that comes through that entire thing. I'm, I'm out of the game. Yeah. So give consideration to what the economics are of, of the physical event you're being considered for and make sure that adds up. So on occasions, I've, I've done those events because I wanted to. Yeah but I've come in with the understanding of almost saying that like you, when they ask my fee, I say, well, you can't afford it. Like, like <laughs> from the get go. So while you're asking me what my fee is like, you must have a figure in mind as to what you're looking to pay a speaker for this event. And I'll let you know how far lower than my standard fee was. Right. Let, let, let's start there and see if we can create a package that makes this worth doing. Yeah. That has nothing to do with the dollar amount of the fee. And this is where you get some of the most joyful international experiences. Like, I've stayed in CEO's beautiful beach houses in Thailand and been able to extend my trip by 10 days for a fee that paid a third of what I normally would do. Right. But I got treated to all these super-rich cultural experiences with local people and got great advice and got a tour guide and had somebody look after me in China for me, you know, for us to be able to go and experience these dozens of things. Like I had so many great experiences from international speaking where I got... I got far richer than I would have got than if I got full fee. And I think that should be the fuel that drives somebody out of the U S don't think about trying to do it unless, unless you're looking to try and move a book into new markets. Like sure. I love the fact that David Hasselhoff is far more famous outside of the U S than he is in, you know, in the U S market. And if you've got an exportable book idea or you've got, you know, something that really strives in another market, get yourself out there, go speak.
0: Well, I really like that you touched on, there's, uh, this is something we talk a lot about, whether you're speaking, you know, domestically or internationally, there's a lot of value that you can receive from an event, um, that goes far beyond whether or not you got a check or how many zeros are in that check. And so like you mentioned, whether you're going somewhere internationally, that's just an exotic location and you're able to turn it into a 10 day vacation with you and your wife, um, that has a dollar amount associated with it that may be far greater than what they could have paid you in terms of a fee, but still provides great value for you, or they introduce you to, um, you know, several other potential clients that book you or whatever. There's other ways that you can get value beyond whether or not, you know, you got a check or how much that that check is for.
1: It brings risk too, though, as you start to expand an international business. You know, the the travel variations start to become a little more complex. The opportunity for you to be able to miss a flight can can challenge you more difficulty. The the, the switch over in in time zones can mess with right. your bottle clock in a different way. You can you can really cost yourself by taking international gigs the wrong way around or trying to do too many back to back or to juggle around the world. I mean, this February just gone, I went around the world three times. I crossed time zones, God knows how many, and it. I was, I was beat. Yeah. I was yep. Um, so, so be real clear on your reasons. And I, and I say that cause I've done it wrong a number yeah. of times.
0: Let me ask you one final question here. And, um, I asked this half joking, half serious. How much do you feel like your accent helps you?
1: Um, how much? I think it helps me more in the U S market than it does anywhere else.
0: I would think so. Yeah.
1: Um, it's funny in that it hinders me now more back home because I have a rounded off British accent that sounds like I'm more American than I am British. Um, that, that kind of misses and, and around the world it can cause an issue too because of the fact that I now almost have a, an international accent in, in what it would be viewed as from, from lots around the world. They, they, they can't regionally put it in the, in the box they would like to so easily. Yeah. So there's pros and cons. Like there's pros and cons to everything, right? Yeah. And I think we, as speakers, we're all looking for the edge of where we can win. And British speaker uh, share a story here. Uh, reached out to me the other day because he was very, very frustrated that he lost a gig because he was a guy. Okay. And he was looking for some context from me to either fuel his argument and 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 to say that this was absolute outrage and i and i responded to him i said how many times have you won a gig because you have a british accent yeah and he went oh yeah that's true (laughs) see whether it's an accent whether it's that you look a certain way whether it's you are a certain sex whether it's that you cover a certain topic you know the reasons that somebody picks you as opposed to somebody like you could be split you know hair thin and we win some we lose some that's the gig right
0: Very true. Very true. Phil, thank you so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. Always good to catch up with you and chat with you. You have a a multitude of books that are phenomenal, that are very um, uh, content rich and quick punch, easy reads. Uh, So if people want to find out more about you, your books, what you're up to, uh, where can we go? Um, Two things. One
1: is uh, stop by the website, philmjones.com. You'll find everything I'm up to there. Um, Something I'd encourage a lot of speakers to do right now is the project that I did with audible.com. Um, as an audible original, I produced a one day sales workshop, which was a live seminar that we turned into an audible original is, um, grab yourself a a listen to that for two reasons. One is the experience of turning a full day seminar into an audio listening experience was, was something that I think speakers will see an insight into that other people may not. Mm-hmm. And two is, is the kind of person that I had at the front of my mind when we were delivering the content to how to go win more business for people that are just like you guys listening in right now. So my guess is you take something from it, it will help you grow your business. And you can go to audible.com forward slash Phil M Jones. And then you'll find the landing page directly for that one. A uh,
0: quick other question here. I'm always curious when it comes to domains and names, why do you have the middle initial is Phil Jones not available or is it a strategic decision?
1: Um, I started this business eleven years ago when domain um, domains were not so much of a sexy thing. I couldn't get philjones.com. This was the quickest and easiest um, domain to be able to have, and then I've been stuck with it. Yeah. Um, it has helped as a differentiator, and it, it differentiates for two reasons. One is I kind of feel like I have two egos. Yeah. So if you haven't read Todd Herman's new book, the uh-huh. effect is um, I feel like the M in the middle of my name is the thing that allows me to put a cape on when I go on stage. Um, the other thing, though, is Phil Jones is a Manchester United and England soccer player, so Google rankings are hard. And and here's a funny speaker-only joke, is if you put the words Phil Jones speaker into Google, I also compete with a bass amplifier company called Phil Jones Speakers. <laughs> um, for me to win the Google search on name alone, the M helps, I promise. So
0: We, uh, we actually recently acquired it. We haven't talked about this publicly, but um, we, we have The Speaker Lab, which is the primary thing that we use um, because Speaker Lab, without The, uh, was a speak, like an audio speaker company in Seattle for many, many years. And we were able to, they ended up going out of business. So we got the domain from them. Um, but yeah, same type of thing. I've just, there's someone out there who's, you're competing with, who has some other, Yeah. Uh, Variation of your name that has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with you. Yeah. Bill, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. You're welcome, buddy. Pleasure to be here. All right. There you go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab podcast. And before you take off, don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast leave us a rating and review within iTunes. We read every single one of those. It helps, it, helps other people to find the show. Listen, we, we don't charge anything for you to listen to these. We don't have any ads or anything. We do this because we want to serve and support speakers like you. So one small favor we ask of you is that you would leave us some type of rating and review. And again, we really, really do appreciate that. If you're looking for more help, support as a speaker as you build and grow your business at whatever stage you're at, don't forget to check out thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. we got a ton of free resources and tools over there. So again, check it out over at thespeakerlab.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.